Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. Well, joy is the message today. You can see by the new banner that has been added, it is joy today. And this is a cycle that was set in place centuries ago. And the church has been doing this for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's, it's kind of focused on this little display here called an Advent wreath that has four candles that represent the four emphasis of Christmas. And then there is a center candle, which we do not light until Christmas Eve. Our Christmas Eve is going to be on Christmas Eve, 5 o'clock. We're going to gather back in this room. And I encourage you to be a part of that. Uh, to be here for that 60 minutes is a very meaningful time. It's a very different kind of service. It's not like anything else we do. But that is the capstone to our Christmas season. And I encourage you to be here 5 o'clock on Christmas Eve when we light that center candle. But today we light a third candle, and it is for joy. That's what we're talking about today. Now, I imagine that the emphasis on joy in Christmas comes from a passage in Luke chapter 2. You may want to turn there. Luke chapter 2 is the familiar Christmas story. It's one telling of the familiar Christmas story. And uh, this part of the Christmas story about joy starts in the strangest kind of way. In the strangest kind of way imaginable, we will start the message of joy, but it starts with fear. With fear. It starts almost with, with a terror, with a visceral terror that some people are sensing before they experience joy. It goes like this. There's a group of sheep herders, shepherds. Shepherds in that society in that day were on the edge of society. They were the outcasts. You did not allow your children to associate with shepherds. They were on the edge of society not just because they associated with sheep and they smelled like sheep, although there was probably that, but they were on the edge of society, shepherds were, because they had developed a reputation for being dishonest. You could not count on the word of a shepherd, so the popular thinking went. Everything they said was considered to be a lie, and so this story starts with this band of people that have already been labeled as liars by society. Honesty was their problem. You know, honesty is the most prized of character traits, to be honest, to tell the truth. Because without honesty, you're nothing, really. Think about it. If you don't have honesty, you don't have anything, no matter what else you do have. If you lie then everything else you do, no matter how lofty or how good or even how holy-looking it is, it's all going to be looked at by somebody else as just some new kind of lying scheme on your part because you're a known liar. Even when you do something right, if you've got a reputation of a liar, people are going to say, well, what's he got up his sleeve this time? Right? There's a reason why truth was the highest ideal in the ancient world. And we seem to have slipped some since those days. But back to our shepherds, they had the reputation of liars. This is another way that the story of Jesus is not something that, that you or I or anybody we know would have invented. We would not have told the story of the Messiah, the Christ, the way it's told. Because of the way it begins and the way it ends. At the end of the story, Jesus rises from the dead. And who are the first people to testify to that fact? It's a small group of women. They witness Jesus as he's risen from the dead. They're the very first ones to go out and tell that story of the resurrected Christ. And in their day, they were on the edge of society too. Women were not allowed to serve as witnesses in a court of law. For the same reason, because people had the idea that Perhaps their testimony was not all that truthful. The shepherds are in the same boat. And so isn't it unique that Jesus' story opens with people that are suspect and it closes with people that are suspect? If you were inventing this story and writing it up out of whole cloth, you would not have had him start or finish like this. 
But he starts with this group of shepherds. And that's one of the ways I know this isn't a story somebody invented. Two most important events are witnessed by marginal people. Shepherds have just been terrorized, you see, by this dazzling brightness. They've been out on the plain taking care of their sheep. It's deep in the night, and all of a sudden, this unexpected brightness dazzles them and knocks them to the ground. And they're, they're terrified by it out there in that remote field. And, and then there had been the appearance of a great speaking angel. I don't know what an angel's voice would sound like, but I bet it wasn't anything common. And it certainly wasn't anything that they'd ever heard before. And the worst thing about it was it had all come on them so suddenly And the unexpected nature of this angel appearance who's now talking to them was the most frightening thing about it. They they were not prepared for what happened to them that night. And who was this that appeared to them? Was it Michael, the archangel, or, or Gabriel, another great angel? But we don't know because the angel is unnamed, but his message is crystal clear. And this is how the message of joy starts. Pick the story up in chapter 2 of Luke. Verse 10, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. Almost every time angels appear in Scripture, they have to come on with that opening phrase to people, don't be afraid now. Why? Because people are afraid. And these men were, don't be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. There's these words come to them from the mouth of this great angel after this terrifying spectacle, this dazzling light, this sudden approach, and they're told, don't be afraid. Good news, great joy for all the people because today in the city of David, a Savior has been born. He's Christ the Lord. My, my current hero right now is a creature that I saw in the movie Jurassic World. Prentice and I went to see it one day, and my new hero is this swimming dinosaur called Megalodon. If you've seen the movie, he's the hero at the very end. When this mutant creature is tearing up our friendly Tyrannosaurus Rex... And suddenly, out of nowhere, the the animal has not made an appearance since early in the picture when he ate a great white whale, a shark. And then then he, oh, he ate a pterodactyl too, I forgot. But he hasn't been in the picture since then. And all of a sudden, at the very end, whoom, he comes up out of the ocean and he swallows this great big terrifying creature and he saves the day and he turns it into a nice movie. Megalodon. He's the greatest. Well, I bring him up because, in a roundabout sort of way, his name is in this passage. If you look in the original language, it talks about a great joy. The angel says, I bring you good news of great joy. And there's the word mega there in the original. Great. Mega means as big as it gets. It doesn't get any bigger than this. That's why Megalodon is my hero. Mega, great joy. He says, why? Because the news is good. That's why. The news is good. Do you realize that the word gospel, that's what it means, good news? When we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, what makes it good news is that the Savior has come to die for us, to take our place. And because He has come in the manner He's come, we can approach Him. The Word of God says that our approach to Him should not be crawling and on our knees, but He says He invites us to come boldly to the throne of grace, and there we can find mercy and help in our time of need. And we can do that because He came the way He came as a baby. He came. And our joy can be great because the gospel is such a beautiful word, and the news is good. So why do we have great joy, mega joy? It's because... He brings us good news. 
And, and then there's another reason why we can have great joy, because nobody gets left out. I read that right here in this passage. I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for who? All the people. Nobody gets left out. That's what makes this great news so good, and that's what causes it to come with such joy, because nobody gets left out. You know, the most irritating, maybe different for you, but for me, the most irritating kind of religious people are what I call the choosers. The choosers. The choosers are the people, self-appointed, who decides who's a real Christian and who's not, who gets in and who gets left out, who's good and who's bad, who's naughty, who's nice. The choosers, you see. When I was a kid, we used to have a phrase, the kid was bossing you around, you didn't like what he was saying, you'd say, who died and made you king? Well, that's what I feel about the, the choosers who have decided they're the ones who get to decide who's in, who's out, who's saved, who's not. And in the face of all the self-appointed people who choose comes the word of a mighty angel. Good news of great joy which will be for all the people, not some of the people. Not just the people that the choosers and the self-appointed like or, or that are most like them. Not just for them, but for all the people. That's why we can have great joy, because nobody gets left out, you see. The Bible will say later on that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither man nor woman, black, brown, skin tone, is only because God likes variety and nothing more. Don't read anything else into it. We're different colors because God likes variety for the same reason he has a whole lot of different color flowers. And there's a whole lot of different colors of everything. There's a lot of different kinds of people. Don't read any more into it than that. The good news, the best news that the world has ever heard is for, say it again, for who? For all people. Say it again, all people. Years ago, a pastor tried to tell me that I worked for, he tried to tell me that quotas are necessary in our church, and we need only have so many of this color and so many of that color. And you do know that some churches reinforce the idea that it's best when churches are split along those lines, or they're split along money lines, or the size of your house lines, or where your kids go to school lines. Now, if you think that people should be separated like that, you're entitled to your opinion, and your argument isn't with me, although I'm pleased to argue that point with you. But your argument is not with me. It's with a great, big, dangerous angel who says, all people, all people. Paul put his reputation on the line. He put his apostleship on the line. He put his endorsement with the mother church at Jerusalem on the line when he says in Galatians 2, he relates to us an experience that he had with Simon Peter, the prince of apostles, where Simon Peter was misbehaving when certain people were around. He was open to everybody. He would sit down and have a meal with Jew and Gentile alike. It made no difference to him. But when other people, some of the choosers, came around, he wanted to put on a good face. Simon Peter, prince of the apostles now. And he would only eat with certain people then. And he shunned others. All believers, but he shunned others. And Paul said, I didn't like what I saw. And I had to withstand him to his face. Don't you wish you had video on that? When the Bible says all people, when the angel says all people, I take it that he means all people. All people means what? It means all people. It means your friends that are messed up and your relatives that irritate you and the drunks at MLK Park that can't connect three coherent thoughts together. But it also means the department heads with all their bright minds at Cal State. All people means all people. Christ is for all people, you see. He's the Savior of what? Part of the world? No, all the world. And then he says, there's great joy. Why? Because nobody gets left out. Great joy. Great joy, too, for another reason. You know what the phrase, one size fits all, means? 
It means one size fits almost none or very few. That's what it really means. You know, the gospel is almost magical to me in the way that it can be, as I said, for everybody, all people. But at the very same time, it can be just for me at the very same time. The good news of Christ, it speaks just to me. All people for sure. But look at what this angel says. There has been born for you, for you, a Savior. For all people, but just for you too. There's an old gospel song we used to sing that says, He is mine, mine, mine. Blessed be His name. He's given peace, perfect peace to me. He is mine, mine. Blessed be His name. Mine for all eternity. There's another chorus I like to sing sometimes just in my head. It says, Now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me. You let that thought sink in. I belong to him. He belongs to me. He's been born for you, a Savior. It's great joy because Jesus, listen to me, is just for you. And then there's another reason why there's great joy. What's in a name? What's in a name? Well, in the Bible, names mean a lot. Names mean an awful lot. And in this passage, Jesus is called three names. He's called Savior, he's called Christ, and he's called Lord. See what he says? Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Savior, Christ, and Lord. I love that name, Savior, because it describes exactly what I need. I like the word Savior We talk about being saved, but I like another phrase better, I'm safe. When Christ is in me and I'm in Christ, when I belong to Jesus and Jesus belongs to me, yeah, we can say I'm saved, but that's almost shop-worn now. I like to say I'm safe. I'm in a safe place, and I can't be harmed when I'm in Christ because He's my Savior. I'm in that safe place, and then He's called Christ. You know what that means? That means the anointed one. That's the Greek version of the word, Hebrew word, Messiah, Mashiach. It means the anointed one, the crowned one, the one who's chosen to be king. And Jesus is for sure that. One of the things Jesus came to set up was a thing he talked about called the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Did you know that the kingdom of God is not something that's in the future? It's not way beyond Pluto. We use the phrase, when kingdom comes. But the kingdom has come now. The kingdom is here now. And what is a kingdom but a place wherever the king is in charge? And repeatedly Jesus told us, the kingdom of God, you want to know where that is? It's within you. It's within you. The kingdom is wherever the king is in charge. And I determine how big the kingdom is in my life. How much of my life will I open to Him? Will I only give Him my religious life? Then His kingdom will be small in me. That area where He is in charge, where He calls the shots. Do I dare let Him into my family life or my social life or my leisure life or my work life? Then the kingdom expands, you see. There are chambers within our lives that We keep hidden and locked. Will I open those up? Will I throw open those vaults where there are secret hurts and there are secret desires? Will I throw that open? If I do, then the kingdom expands still more. You see, the kingdom of God is always expanding. Not only in the world, but in my life, if I allow Him. Because Christ, the King, He's in charge of that kingdom, and the kingdom of God is within us. He's Christ, but He's also Lord. You know what that word Lord means? It means master. Here's the sticking point for a lot of people that name the name of Christ. Here's the reason why we see some people and they say, yes, I'm a Christian. But you see very little evidence. It's because they don't understand 
that if you're going to have him as Savior, the one who puts you in the safe place, you must also have him as Lord, Master, the one who sits on the throne of your life and calls the shots. You see, Jesus, somebody said a long time ago, will either be Lord of all, he takes it all, or he's not Lord at all. If there's a part of your life that you say, uh-uh, you can't come in here, then you can't say he's your Lord. You can't say he's your master. But at that point at which you bow your entire life, and that includes your bank account and your home, it includes your car. Will I use my car for Christ? Will I use my time for Christ? Will I use my mind for Christ? Will I use my leisure time for Christ? At that point at which you put it all at his disposal, then he becomes not only Savior, he becomes Lord and Master. And we're told, as the angel explains it to these shaking shepherds, that he comes as Savior, the one who puts us in a safe place. He comes as Christ, the one whose kingdom is expanding in our lives, and he also comes as Lord You know, because the natural urge would have been, I'm thinking of Mary and Joseph now, who find themselves pregnant. Joseph is a remarkable guy because he's got to take it first from the lips of Mary and then from the mouth of an angel that this child that is growing in Mary, it's not from some clown down the street. It's not the UPS man. It's a Holy Spirit baby. The problem for Joseph is this has never happened before, right? So he's got to take it as an article of faith. But Mary hasn't been clowning around with some other guy. But it's the Lord's baby, whatever that means. But Mary has to accept it too. The problem is the society doesn't accept it. And who's suspect number one but Joseph? Now, because the natural urge in that difficult situation for these two, just to lend some legitimacy to this child about whom the rumors are already circulating even before he's born, just to lend legitimacy to the whole thing, the natural inclination would have been, name this child after Joseph, right? But mother and father are told the same thing in separate incidents, given very specific instructions, again by angels, you shall call his name Jesus. Not Joseph. Not son of Joseph. Jesus. We don't have any Jesus in our our family line. Well, now you do. And the reason that name was chosen is because of what it means. Jesus means Jehovah, Yahweh, is God. He's God. So look at what we're being told just in this little baby's name. He's he's Savior. He's Christ. But they name Him Jesus. Yahweh is Lord. Jehovah is Lord. Jehovah is God. That means that this child who is born, He is one of us for sure, but He's God in the flesh, you see, by His very name. By His very name. And so there's great joy. There's great joy because His name's cover it all. Everything I need is in His name. Everything's there. And finally, there's great joy because it's a baby. (laughs) It's a baby. We're getting used to having babies around again. It's a lot of fun. In fact, because when they cry, somebody else picks them up, and when they fill their pants, somebody else changes them, and when it's evening time, they go home it's even more fun than it was the first time. With babies, there's always joy, right? It's always joy. Stop and think a minute. This miracle, this Christ miracle, His coming is miraculous start to finish. But He could have come miraculously any other way. Remember, we're dealing with God here. Nothing off limits. His choice and how he could have come, it didn't need anybody's approval. I've told you before, my favorite verse is on Psalm 115, where we're told God is in heaven. He does what he pleases. <laughs> he doesn't have to consult me or anybody. He does what he pleases. And what that means is he is the one who is only one, only one, who is fully pleased by everything he does. What he pleases, no qualifications. So he could have come in any way he wanted. He might have come as a full-grown person. 
And when you think about it, there's a lot to recommend that. Had he come fully grown, there would have been the advantage of not waiting to grow into his role. He could have hit the ground running. And all of the time on earth could have been spent what was on most important. The healings and the demonstrations and the power over disease and death and nature. But he came as a baby, not a full grown. But who doesn't love a baby? See why he came as a baby? Who doesn't love a baby? Who can be threatened by a baby? Let me ask you. From what you've seen, as you've lived for Christ and walked for Christ and paid attention, from what you've seen, what is it? that keeps people at odds from God, that keeps them putting their arms out and saying, I don't want you to get any closer to God. What is the biggest reason that people avoid Him? I've heard people say, and I'm sure you have friends like this too, you invite them to church, oh, if I came in, what would happen? The roof would cave in. Now, that's a saying, and I guess it's meant to be funny or to deflect when you invite them. But that funny little phrase, it betrays a fear of God, doesn't it? Somewhere down deep, there's a fear of God. That if I let him catch up with me, he's going to want to settle a score with me. But nobody fears a baby. Nobody fears a baby. And so he comes as a baby, and for that reason, there's great joy. There's great joy. We had a birthday party at our house yesterday for the two-year-old. And it was a lot of fun, and there were some nice presents and good food, and it was great. But I noticed that several of the kids were fascinated with the balloons. And they wanted to play with the balloons, right? And talk in the balloons and squeeze the balloons and let the balloons go up and then open the balloon and suck it in and talk really funny. They were playing with the balloons, and it, it made, me think, made me think about this, about a story I heard a while back of a, a service that was held in a Presbyterian church, and they gave everybody balloons, and you were told that at any point in the service when you experience joy through what we're saying or singing or hearing or doing, at that point at which you experience joy, let your balloon go. Now, I guess they did this because Presbyterians are not free to say hallelujah when they feel joy. They're not free to raise their hands and express it that way, and so the balloon was the way. But at the end of that service, the report was that fully one-third of those balloons were unreleased. My message to you is let your balloon go. Let your balloon go. Express joy. Because there's a whole lot of reasons for us to have joy. Amen? I want to close with this. I, I saw some last words. I'm always interested in last words. But I saw some last words that came from the third century. A man who knew he was dying and he wrote his final last words to a friend in a letter. A dear friend. And it was so good that I copied it out, and I, I'm going to keep it and look at it from time to time. But here's what this man said, his last words to his friend. He said, it's a bad world, an incredibly bad world. But I have discovered in the middle of it all a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. They found a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of our sinful life they are despised and persecuted, but don't care. They are masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people are the Christians, and I am one of them. You're one of them, and that joy can be yours. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.